that song uh, continues with these words. It's the cure for our condition. It's the good news for us all. It's greater than religion. It is the power of the cross. In my own life, it means forgiveness when I know I deserved the fall. It called me out of my darkness and carried me to the cross. In a moment, my eyes were opened. In that moment, my heart was changed. Like a blinding light in the dead of night. It's the gospel. The gospel that makes a way. We are talking about the gospel this morning as we continue our series in the first six chapters of Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. This is uh, week three in the series. As Dennis said a little bit ago, uh, I'll be taking a break next week. In a week and a half, Blair and I will be celebrating our 32nd wedding anniversary. We're going to use next weekend to enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> I know you will look forward to uh, Roger Everett. Uh, those of you who remember Mr. Everett from uh, the school, um, uh, of course, we support him on the mission field. Uh, pray, be praying for him uh, this week as he comes. And then I'll continue. I'll pick up where I left off um, in two weeks, uh, and I look forward to that already. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Stephen Salvis. I am one of the elders here. It's my privilege uh, to serve uh, as an elder. Thank you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Thank you. When I, uh, I remember visiting a church years ago, I was a Baptist church, uh, the bulletin said, uh, it identified the church, and then it said this, uh, we seek to be a lighthouse for the lost and a greenhouse for the believer. A lighthouse for the lost. I've never forgotten that. It's been years uh, since I visited that church, but I have always remembered that. And I desire that to be true of Grace Church. That we would be a lighthouse for the lost where uh, people are drawn to the message of Jesus Christ. They're drawn to the preaching of the gospel. They're drawn to our teaching. They're drawn to our people and how we live in the community and what they see us doing in our ministry here and outside these walls. A lighthouse for the lost. And then a greenhouse for the saved. Uh, a place where we grow. As we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we grow in our faith, we grow in maturity, we grow in grace, we love one another and we serve one another. And we take what we learn and we take it out and we share it with others. You are our lighthouse, Grace Christian. You are our lighthouse. May we be that. Turn in your Bibles, please, to... The book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you are using the Bible under the seat in front of you, it is still on page 952. We will get off 952 today, today. Page 952, 
uh, in the Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And our text starts in verse uh, 18. We finished up at verse 17 last week, but I'm going to start at 17 again because it carries into verses 18 and following. So start at verse 17. We'll read through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord would you bow your heads and pray with me please Lord, thank you for the morning, and thank you for your word. I confess, Lord, that 
my fear in preaching is getting in the way of the word. Please, please, God, may that not be the case. But may your Holy Spirit move in the lives of the people here this morning. Open our ears, our minds, our hearts today to the message And if there's anyone here who does not know you as a personal Savior and Lord, may today be the day. Grow us, dear God, in grace and in faith, and bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in verses 1 through 17, Paul makes a plea for unity. As a matter of fact... In verse 10, that has been our central uh, verse uh, over the past two weeks. Paul says these words, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul, in his introduction, points the people to Christ. And he challenges them in their divisions. He says, our unity is in Jesus Christ. Stop choosing people to follow. Stop dividing into groups. Stop separating yourselves over preferences and secondary issues. Preferences are okay, but they should not separate the body of Christ. And then in verse 18, Paul begins a, a discussion of the things that cause these divisions. We are going verse by verse uh, through these first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. So if that's the case, we should be starting at verse 17 again, because that's where I began. But today... I want you to turn to verse 31. I'm starting from the back. I'm starting from the end. And we'll get to the beginning. Verse 31. Paul writes these words. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Turn back for me. If you have that Bible under the seat in front of you, it's on page 638. We're turning to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. First Corinthians 131 is a quote from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 9. As you're turning there, I'm turning to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. So if you're finding Jeremiah 9, hold your place there for a little bit. We'll be there in a moment. I'm in 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. And I look down and I see myself in 1 Corinthians, so pardon me. 2 Corinthians, here we go, chapter 10. I'm starting in verse... Seven. Listen to these words Paul writes to these same Corinthian Christians. 
in his second letter, actually his fourth letter. We discussed that two weeks ago. It's the second letter we have in our Bibles. To the Corinthians, uh, Paul wrote, Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. I love that. I'm going to explain what that means in a moment. For his letters say, they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Okay, so Paul is addressing in this second letter here in chapter 10 the Corinthian church and their dependence on false teachers. They're allowing false teachers to come in, and they're being drawn to these teachers. These are people who are preaching a false gospel. They're preaching legalism, and they're commending themselves. They're saying, look at us, Corinthian church. We speak with authority. We have God's blessing. We're preaching to you what is true. They weren't, and that's what Paul is warning them of here. And they're bashing the apostle Paul while they do it. Don't listen to him. Of course, their motivation is money. Paul says, you have those among you who say that when I write a letter that they're powerful and weighty. So there's a group of people in the church saying, and we discussed this last week, There's a group of people saying his letters are strong and authoritative, and he's pounding on them in his letters. But when he's there in presence, how did they take him? Do you remember? As weak, as trembling. That's how Paul described himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yeah, I came to you in weakness. And in trembling, and we talked last week about uh, whether that could be, he was truly anxious over uh, the persecution he was experiencing as he was in Corinth preaching the gospel. But it could also be that he was preaching purposely in a way that showed his full dependence on Christ. You call me weak. My letters come across strong. And the people are saying, your letters don't jive with the guy we see behind the pulpit. That would be our today vernacular. 
Boy, you write strong, Salvis. You pound on us in your letters. Man, you get up there, you're kind of a wimp. That's what they're telling Paul. Listen to what he says. Listen to, listen to how he answers this in verse 14. I'm still in 2 Corinthians 10. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure. That is of other men's labors. But having hope when your faith is increased. That we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. And not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand, but, verse 17, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Twice, Paul uses this quote from the book of Jeremiah to address the Corinthians. We are talking about unity in the church. And Paul addresses, in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, causes of divisions in the church, one being our self-centeredness. We're all about ourselves. Look down at Jeremiah 9. 23 and 24. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. It was about eight or nine years ago that um, uh, I spent a couple months, studying the book of Jeremiah. And I came across these words. And I claimed them then as my life verse. As a matter of fact, if you come to my office at the Charles County Sheriff's Office headquarters building, you'll find these words on my wall. Everybody who comes into my office sees these words. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Intelligence will not get you to heaven. Your intelligence, don't count on it. Don't count on it to get you into eternity in Christ's presence. It's not going to happen. Let not the mighty man Glory in his might. No matter how much talent you have. No matter what you can do with your hands. No matter how strong you are. 
No matter how impressive you are on an athletic field, it's not going to get you into eternity in Christ's presence. Don't count on it. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. No matter how much money you have, you can be socking away money in the bank all day long. It's not going to get you into heaven. Your money, you may be giving it away. Maybe you're hoarding it. Maybe you're giving it away. Maybe you're generous. It's not going to get you into heaven. Your money's not going to get you anywhere. Only Jesus Christ can do that. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can have the assurance of heaven. As a matter of fact, what, what do we talk about? Two weeks ago. It's in Christ that we are blameless. We're chargeless. We have no charge against us. God is faithful to make that so. We are guaranteed to be in his presence for eternity. God is faithful to make it so. So what's all this got to do with the gospel? Let's turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're all starting at the same place at the foot of the cross. No matter where you come from in life, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how rich you are or poor you are, we all start out at the same place at the cross. And therein lies our unity. Look at verse 17 for me, please. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel. Pastor Bill did a terrific job on a series of messages on the gospel. The Greek noun is euangelion. Euangelion. If I were to write it out on this board, it would say, that looks blank. Here we go. This is the title of my message <laughs> for the last three weeks and continuing. <clears throat> if I were to write it out up here on the board, it would look like the term evangelism. To share good news. To share the good news of Jesus Christ. If, if a messenger years ago were to cry out before the town, Good news! Good news! We've won the battle! We've had victory! He's sharing gospel to the people. 
Good news. The king has had a son. We have an heir to the throne. He's sharing gospel for the Christian. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it starts at the cross. The word gospel is never used in the Old Testament. It's used 104 times in the New Testament. Many times simply as the gospel. But other times, it's referred to as the gospel of God. Or the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace. The gospel brings peace. The gospel of your salvation. Amen. The glorious gospel. And in the book of Revelation, it's referred to as the everlasting gospel. This gospel lives on into eternity. The gospel is good news. It's a life-saving message to a dying world. And what is that life-giving message? It's in verses 17 and 18. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Verse 18 for the preaching of the cross, I think in your, uh, if you have an ESV or NIV, it might say the message of the cross. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. For the preaching or the message of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is equating the gospel with the cross. It all starts there. The sum and substance of the gospel is the cross. And Paul directs the church's attention to Jesus Christ once again. And specifically to his death on the cross, which is our only means of salvation. Look back at verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. Remember what we said last week? Eloquence may win the mind. But the gospel is not designed to appeal to man's intellect. It's designed to appeal to his sense of guilt by sin. The gospel cannot be preached as a philosophical system. It is preached that way it shouldn't be it should be preached solely as our only means of salvation for the preaching of the cross verse 18 is to them that perish or better are perishing to them that are perishing foolishness this isn't necessarily their final state but they're currently perishing because they prefer human wisdom over the cross of Christ. To us who are being saved, or better, to us who are in the way of salvation. 
Salvation is a process. And it's the power of God. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That confessing is ongoing. It's a daily thing. It's not a one-time thing. I confess this daily with my life and with my words. So people hear it and see it and know that the two go together and they're right. Salvation is a process through sanctification. If we get there, and we didn't last service, we'll talk a little bit about that. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul wrote, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The power of the gospel is in its ability to save the sinner from eternal punishment and to reconcile him or her to God, a God whom we're separated from. See, here, here's the rub. You can tell people all about Jesus' teachings, about loving others, about the golden rule, about how to use money, And if people believe that Jesus is a good teacher and they obey his teachings and live a good life, that's wonderful. But if they do not believe the message of the cross, that they are separated from God because of sin, that God sent his own son to die on the cross for them, that Jesus paid the penalty for their sin on the cross, if they do not believe this, And if they do not confess this, they do not know the power of God unto salvation. All of this is the gospel. But it's at the cross where people meet Christ as Savior. That's the most important part. This is where we find Salvation. Jesus' finished work on the cross has the power to save, and that is the gospel. It's not enough to believe he was a good person or a good teacher. You have to believe that he is a good Savior. Look down at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is, this is a quote from uh, uh, the book of Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah prophesied during the time of uh, Hezekiah's reign and before then. But Isaiah wrote these words. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Talking about God. Paul actually, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, changes the wording a little bit to to make it so that God will destroy. Instead of a passive, the wisdom of the wise will be destroyed, which is actually what it says in in Isaiah. This is during a time when uh, Hezekiah, who who loved the Lord, he was a righteous king, he pleased uh, the Lord. But 
human wisdom caused uh, Judah to form an alliance with Egypt and a couple other cities because Sennacherib and the Assyrians were coming. And they could see, Judah could see, this doesn't look good. We're going to get crushed. And their trust was in this alliance, but that alliance started to fall apart as cities went under. So it's only Judah and Egypt left. And Sennacherib is laughing at this. You have no hope now, Judah, because Egypt is a weak reed. Bless you. We're going to crush you. Human wisdom said, let's form an alliance. Instead of trusting the Lord and in his promises that he would take care of them, they decided to form this alliance that did nothing for them. That's what Isaiah addresses. And that's what Paul is is referencing here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Look at verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. I think we skipped verse 20, which is okay. All I'll do is say this. Verse 20, the gist is, human wisdom always proves to be unreliable. Human wisdom always proves to be unreliable. In verse 21, he talks about the foolishness of preaching. That's not the foolishness of the act of standing here and talking to a group of people. But it's a tongue-in-cheek way of, of Paul saying, it's the foolishness of the message. The world sees the message we preach as foolishness. Worldly wisdom says the message of salvation is ludicrous. Worldly wisdom says we have something to do with our own salvation, that we have to earn it. That's what the world says. It's foolish to believe that God did it all. That can't be true. The Jews want a sign. They want a miracle. They want to see the power that's displayed in the Messiah. They refuse to believe the signs from the Old Testament that said Jesus is that Messiah that the Old Testament promised. They refuse to believe the the miracles of his earthly ministry. They want something even bigger than that. Greeks want wisdom. They want to understand the gospel intellectually. They want to be able to argue it from a place of human intelligence. Verse 23, though, says, we, that's Paul, that's Apollos, that's Peter, that's anyone who preaches the true gospel. We preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. 
It's a stumbling block for two reasons. A crucified Christ. They refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in the first place. That's a hurdle for them to get over. He wasn't a king. He was a servant with a ragtag band of followers. That's not the guy we're looking for. There's nothing noble about him. Secondly, that the Messiah could be crucified. This is the death of a slave and a criminal. The Messiah is neither one of those. The Messiah is not going to die that way. The Messiah reigns. So how can I believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, that this Jesus provides a way of salvation? They cannot get over that. They can't get that high on a ladder to get over the stumbling block before them. It makes no sense before them. How could he be a savior, this crucified one? And as a result of that crucifixion, that's how he becomes the savior? That makes no sense to people. The Greeks, a crucified Christ is foolishness. We can argue this book. We can argue it with intelligence. But it still takes a measure of faith to believe. It takes faith to believe. Intelligent people don't want to know about faith. They want to be able to understand it intellectually and argue it and parse it and make it make sense. It's a leap to have to believe by faith. No, I want to prove it. I want to prove something. So it's a stumbling block. Instead of demonstrative proof, God demands faith. On the grounds of his word, both for signs and for wisdom. But for all who believe, verse 24, for all who believe, Christ is the power of God. And the wisdom of God, it's not on man's terms that he can find what he needs. It's only on God's terms which is through the preaching of the gospel of a crucified Christ that opens the eyes of faith to believe. Skip to verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Do you understand what Paul is writing here? He's saying, look around you. Look around you. Do you see any wise people? Not many wise among you, Corinthians. Not many. Not none, but not many. You see any mighty among you? You see any noble among you? Not many. 
some, not many. Go back to Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Not many wise people among you, Corinthians, because intelligent people often rely on their intelligence to get by. It's funny to me that the smarter people get, the more intelligent people get, the dumber they get about Christ and the things of God. They, they put it behind them often. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. You see any mighty among you, Corinthians? Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Noble, the noble people are those of position, those with money. Not many rich people among you, because rich people count on their money to get them by. There is a, a website for the Atheist Alliance International. The Atheist Alliance International. And uh, on that website, there are 10 questions that every believer should ask. Number six, why is it that less well-educated people are more likely to find God and not less likely? That's number six in the argument, why not to believe in God? Because dumb people believe in God is their argument. That's their argument. Less well-educated people. It's a slap in the face to the Christian. And yet Paul, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, says that exact thing. Look, they're counting on their intelligence. We do not. We count on the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for our sins. That is what we count on. Verses 27 and 28, three times Paul uses these words, God hath chosen. God hath chosen. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of ourselves, verse 29. We've done nothing to earn it. Verse 30, what a great verse. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. The emphasis here is on wisdom. By it we become wise unto salvation, Paul wrote to Timothy. And righteousness. God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is immediate. This is immediate when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Sanctification. 
It is the peace of God who sanctifies you, sets you apart for a life of holiness. This is progressive in the Christian life. Righteousness is immediate. Sanctification is progressive. And redemption, ah, praise the Lord, redemption is future. It refers to our final completion here in this verse of our redemption when we are delivered into eternity to live with Jesus forever. And he concludes with the quote from Jeremiah 9. Here's the conclusion. See, I missed a few things. Here we go. The message of the cross cuts to the heart of self-centered man. It is a message of dying, of denying self, of obedience to God, and following the example of Christ. And, by the way, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, and I read Paul's uh, words uh, to the Corinthians the final verse in that chapter says, it is whom the Lord commends who is commended. You can commend yourself all you want for your riches, for your prestige, for your intelligence, but it's the Lord who commends those who are really to be commended. And so I conclude with this. Our unity begins at the cross. Our unity begins, no matter what position we hold in life, no matter how much money you have, how much uh, influence you have, no matter how much talent you have, we all start at the same place at the cross, and therein lies our unity. But how about you? Have you been there? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you know him? That is the most important question that you will answer. Today and every day, do you know him? Who is he to you? Have you met him at the cross? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? It's the only way that you'll be blameless before him. It's the only way you're guaranteed eternity with him. I invite you to be part of us who are less educated. I invite you to that today. So as we sing together, you're welcome to come. If not, see me after the service. I want to speak to you. God bless you.